0: You are listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and this seminar on order in and beyond Europe. Tonight we have the fourth speaker in a series on the future of Europe, something we do together with the Swedish Institute for European Policy Studies. And you'll actually, on their webpage, you can find the previous speakers on video. I'm pretty sure. And also I'd just to, like to advertise that in January we'll have the fifth and final speaker in this series, Almut Müller, coming from Germany to talk about Germany and leadership in the European Union. Today the theme is the status of integration and disintegration within Europe and what this means for our role in the world. How is Europe affected when the values we are supposed to uphold and also spread internationally are increasingly contested within Europe as well as outside of Europe. Now, in order to assess the the future, you need a diagnosis of the the current. And today's speaker, Ivan Krastev, uh, won much acclaim for his description of the forces of disintegration that followed on the refugee crisis. Ivan Krastev is the chairman of the Center for Liberal Strategies and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. He's also spent his autumn in Washington as the Henry Kissinger Chair at the Library of Congress. So he's well-placed to link up Europe's internal issues with today's increasingly turbulent global order. And without further ado, I'll give the scene to Ivan Krastev. who will speak for about 30 minutes, and there will be plenty of time for questions and answers from the audience. So please, Ivan, welcome.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation and for the opportunity. So there was an old uh, Jewish joke uh, about a merchant who went somewhere to make a business uh, in the countryside who sent a telegram to his wife, and the telegram was very short one, start worrying, full stop, details to follow. Uh, and I do believe to a certain extent, basically it captures some of the problems that uh, uh, European Union is uh, facing today. What I'll do is basically present an argument, and my argument is going to go like this. European Union, as we know it today, is constituted of three different Europes and three different projects that go one after the other in time. First, Europe was a post-war project, and it was post-1945 project. Then it was a kind of a Europe of rights, which was post-1968 project, and then you have the unified post-1989 Europe. And I'm going to claim that all three have been in crisis at the same time. And in a certain way, the biggest problem is how to rethink and uh, 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 how to reinvent uh, uh, European Union after this crisis. Let's start with post-1945 Europe and what kind of a crisis it uh, faces. And European Union was post-war in more than one sense. It was post-war, obviously, because it was created on the shared memories of the wars. And there is a lot of written about this, but also what we know by psychologists is that it is very difficult to sustain any type of a traumatic experience than more than three generations. Uh, Survivors of the war are not here anymore. Basically, this generation is not there. Secondly, our societies are becoming much more diversified and different. And for example, for somebody of the Syrian refugees that are now living in Europe, when they say war, they don't mean the World War II. It was not the bombing of Dresden that is going to be associated for them with the war. And certainly you have a new generation, uh, and particularly because of the social media, they are very much in communicating all the time, but they are very much communicating within their own generation. Uh, there was a lot of studies showing that one of the reasons the old people remember is when the young people ask them questions. So if basically nobody is asking you questions, there is no reason for you to remember. And one of the reasons, for example, the war generation has these strong memories was that everybody going back to them and asking questions about this and that. So from this point of view, this kind of a shared memory as a post-war Europe is not here anymore. And we can see this very much in different type of opinion polls. For example, one third, it was two years ago, one third of the school children in Germany on the question how well the human rights have been uh, protected in different uh, Germanies in the 20th century, believed that during the Nazi period, uh, basically the rights were equally protected as in the Federal Republic. Because for them, Nazi Germany is simply an ancient history. They don't relate in the way the previous generation did. The second idea of post-war uh, 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 Europe was the Europe which was living in the shadow of the possible war. And this was the Cold War period in which you're post-war, but you're all the time talking about the war. And this was the nuclear. And I do believe, particularly with the much younger generation of scholars, the very important impact of the nuclear threat as the way to try to make sense, the war that should not happen because this war is going to destroy everything, the war was very much there. What we have, particularly after the end of the Cold War, is that peace was taken for granted. And peace was taken for granted with two very strong assumptions for the foreign policy of the European Union. The first is that military power doesn't matter anymore, if not in the world, in Europe. And this was very strong. If you go on all the dissertation that have been defended for the last 10, 15 years, everything is about soft power, economic power. And part of the shock of the annexation of Crimea was exactly the message is, listen, Probably. <laughs> military power doesn't matter because we don't have it. Uh, and this idea that not having a military power is the way the world goes, and this is particularly strong in countries country like Germany. Pacification of the European mind was one of the major successes of the European integration, but this very success made Europe vulnerable in a moment. And the third aspect of the post-war reality of uh, the post-1945 project was that, Europe was a post-war also, to the extent that it was America's Europe. It was created by the United States, and it was secured by the United States. And now we see very much major change uh, in the relations between the United States and Europe. And I know that people try to basically reduce this change uh, to President Trump, and President Trump is interesting in his own. uh, But the story is that it's a much more structural change. And the structural change is coming from the fact, and this is this three months in uh, the United States that it make it very clear for me, America is becoming very much China-centered. I do believe in a certain extent what is happening in this year very much resembles the change that American foreign policy had in 1947 when the Soviet Union from a kind of a difficult ally during the World War II ended up being perceived as the major enemy. Something like this is happening in the United States with respect to China, and this is a bipartisan. It is not Trump only. The Democrats are very much on the same line, and there's three assumptions that are shared by the two parties, which at this moment are not sharing much in common. One is that basically getting China in the WTO was a mistake. Uh, because it didn't basically shape China and didn't help for the political opening of China, but it allowed it uh, to use uh, the global economic system in their favor. Secondly, the United States believe that uh, the competition with China and the rivalry with China is going to shape the international politics in the next decades. And certainly, American believe that if they are not going to contain China now, in 10 years they will be unable to do it. I'm saying this because when now U.S. and Europe talk about alliance, in the heads of the Americans, this is alliance against China. While for the Europeans, this is very much the traditional alliance that we used to have. Because China is not such a kind of a strategic issue in the European debate for the moment in the way this is in the U.S. So from this point of view, I do believe that this traditional post-war part of the European project does not have the same meaning that it used to have even five years ago. The post-1968 Europe, as the Europe of Rights, I believe is also in crisis. And this is quite interesting, because if you talk uh, to the legal scholars, they're always going to claim that the idea of the rights is as old as the world. Uh, but here I'm very much siding with somebody like Samuel Morin, who basically claims that in order to understand the focus of the human rights, which started with the 1970s, this should be very strongly related. Uh, to the disillusionment with the socialist utopia in general after 68. When the socialist project as a radical project was not there anymore, it was very much focused on the ADF rights. And the 1970s, it was also the time of decolonization. Basically, this was the time of rethinking society and state also perceived as a uh, 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 repressive force. It was about the rights of the individuals and it was about the minority rights. What I do believe we're seeing today, and this is true for all of the populist parties which you're going to see all over the region, uh, we're talking again, the language of rights, but it's going to be the rights of the majorities. Ethnic, religious, political majorities. And this is an interesting discourse because the rights of the majorities is going to be materialized basically about two questions. Who belongs to your political community? The problem of the citizenship and under what kind of conditions. And I do believe this is going to be a very important debate and this debate is also have a totally different dynamics in Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Because 1968 existed both in the East and in the West, but it was a different 1968. While in the Western Europe it was very much about individual rights and rights of the minorities, in Eastern Europe it was about the national rights. It was the Poles against the Soviets in March 1968, when the Polish students went on the street, uh, they have been basically singing patriotic songs. And this was about sovereignty. Not the sovereignty of the individual, but the sovereignty of the nation. The same with Czechoslovakia uh, after the Soviet occupation. So from this point of view, there was a talk of rights both East and West, but we were talking different rights. And secondly, unlike in the West, we had the nationalistic discourse was the one defeated in the World War II. And this is why, for the, particularly the younger generation, the internationalism came as a national option. After 1989, for many in Central and Eastern Europe, internationalism was the discredited one because it was the official language of the communist regimes. They were speaking about internationalism and solidarity and so on. So from this point of view, you have this split on the terms of rights and I do believe this has also quite important implications because quite often one and the same words or parties that are perceived as quite similar have a totally different meaning in Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Even the conservative parties and to some extent even some of the far right in Western Europe is post-1968. But particularly for the conservative on the mainstream, Jan Spahn is a great example of this. You have an openly gay person who is a perceived as a legitimate leader of the conservative wing of the CDU. You cannot imagine an openly gay person being the leader of any of the conservative parties in Eastern Europe. East European conservatism is all-package conservatism. It's about sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, religious minorities. And I do believe this uh, difference is very important, because normally, uh, basically, this uh, express uh, different uh, political sensitivities. So the biggest problem is, and here is uh, the way I was trying to think about it, in many respects what we're seeing today, uh, particularly after the migration crisis, and I could have been uh, making this argument, but I want to repeat it just uh, uh, to know where I'm coming from. Uh, in terms of numbers, migration crisis is not impressive if you see the size of the European Union. It's different for countries like Germany, Austria, or Sweden that got a lot of people. But just to give you one number, there are twice more people that moved from Eastern Europe to Western Europe after the financial crisis than the people that came to Europe after the Syrian war. So it's not about numbers. But 3,000 people being killed in 9-11, also in terms of numbers, is not the biggest tragedy that the world knows. But it pushed Americans to see the world with different eyes. From this point of view, the refugee crisis for many Europeans was the analogous to 9-11. It is not the number of the people that came, but it was kind of the change in the perception of the surrounding world that it provoked. And basically what Europeans discovered was the world which is better connected than ever, but at the same time, extremely uneven world, socially totally unequal, where people have very different lives, but now everybody knows how the others live. And if there is a dictatorship, this is the dictatorship of comparisons. And if you are living in a badly governed and poor African country, and if you want to make a radical change in your life in one generation, better change the country than try to change the government. I do believe this was kind of the things that in a certain way people saw in the world which came with the refugee crisis. And then suddenly, Europeans understood that they are not prepared for this. <laughs> and this is why you have this type of a number of uh, people producing this effect. I'm saying this because otherwise, you're not going to understand something that is also paradoxical. If you're hearing a very strong anti-foreigner's discourse, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, you're going to believe that not a single foreigners has come to these countries in the last five years. Statistics tell us something very different. Never ever in the history of Poland more foreigners has entered the labor market of Poland than in the last five years. At the moment, almost two million foreigners work in Poland. 1.5 of them are Ukrainians, half a million different people, but also including non-Europeans, I mean Filipinos, uh, Pakistanis, and others. So you have this strange story in which there is no correlations between the political discourse prevailing in the country and the reality on the ground. And on the other side, this is also true to the fact that according to the opinion polls, there are more Hungarians who claim that they have seen an unidentified flying objects in their life than the Hungarians who said that they have personally met uh, a, a refugee. Uh, so this is, uh, if, if we're not keeping these contradictions that basically give the picture, we're not going to understand why am I saying all this? Because I do believe that the shift that we're seeing very much shift to the idea of the rights of the majority, shift very much provoked by the demographic fears that certain majority groups starts to perceive themselves as the future minorities. We're not going to understand that, in many respects, what we're seeing today in Europe resemble what happened in the 1968 and after. But this time, uh, the major challenge of the institutions are not coming from the left, but from the right. This is basically the 1968 of the right. And from this point of view, it's quite interesting, because I do believe that one of the major successes of the liberal institutions, uh, during the uh, West European Cold War period was the success, particularly of the center-left, to integrate some of the legitimate concerns coming from the 1968 wave, but at the same time uh, to marginalize and basically uh, uh, try to uh, to cut some of the radical and much more violent uh, uh, wing uh, coming with 1968. People have forgotten how violent 90s, early 1970s were in Western Europe. Uh, Now probably what is happening in France uh, can change this, but till now, uh, nevertheless that we talk a lot about changes on the way people vote and the way people talk, the level of violence in Europe was very low. If you can compare basically with what happened with the Red Army faction in Germany, with Italy and so on in the 1970s, the level of political violence was much higher. But then you have several things happening. You have first the center left, manages to integrate some of the legitimate concerns, new parties being uh, uh, born. Uh, Today, probably, it's very difficult for some people to understand how radical somebody like Joschka Fischer was looking to the then establishment, people throwing stones on the uh, streets and so on. But the Green Party succeeded, basically, to become a system party to get representation and to do what it is doing. The biggest problem is, could the center-right do the same? with the far right today? And I do believe this is a great question, first, because it cannot have a universal answer. I do believe the right answer is it depends on the country, it depends on the party, it depends on the leader. But there are three things that makes it much more difficult for the center right to do the same. First, Cold War was giving a very strong external jacket, uh, which was creating a type, particularly, of a foreign policy consensus. That was, uh, 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 that was making it easier for this transition to happen. Uh, secondly, I do believe that also what is happening is that what we're seeing today is not simply a kind of a European phenomena, but this is much more global phenomena and certain developments, particularly in the United States, are going to have a very strong implications for this. And thirdly, and this is quite interesting, is that basically uh, for the center right is going to be probably much more difficult to keep this line exactly because the far right is not coming the classical violent agenda that some of the kind of revolutionary groups of the far left has in the 1960s. I'm going to give you one example. I was always very skeptical uh, to the hope of President Macron that he can, on European level, repeat the success of his French campaign for one very simple reason. On these European elections, there is not a single major party on the far right which is openly anti-European. Nobody wants to exit European Union anymore. They could be very anti-European in content. They can be very much against the values. Nobody wants to exit. Unlike Marie LuPen during the campaign who said referendum on the euro, we should decide we should get staying in. Nobody wants to leave. Everybody wants to change the European Union, but you cannot have a clash between pro-European and exiters. Paradoxically, Brexit uh, totally transformed uh, some of the far right. And secondly, for the first time, far right is a pan-European movement. It is not simply a national phenomena. Before, even when these parties existed, there were national phenomena. On the other side, interestingly enough, there are success stories on this de-radicalization. On and one of the interesting stories is Austria. And it's not Austria today, but Austria in 2000. Uh, there is a lot of talk of uh, uh, how the European Union basically failed uh, to convince uh, then uh, 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 Chancellor Schusel uh, to get the far right out of the coalition. But the interesting story is that based on the legitimacy that Schusel got on the right of resisting the European Union, he managed to destroy the far right for a decade. Basically, the Haider party was destroyed by the, the Schussel center right. So I'm saying this because I do believe the problem of the, and how we are going to define the post-1968 Europe of rights in a moment in which the rise of a political parties which are putting the rights of the majority at the center of the political agenda is one that is not simply going to define the domestic politics of most of the countries, but very much going to define the European Union. And then I will go to the third Europe which is in question, and this is post-1989 Europe. And here the Question is why post-1989 Europe, which was the first time in history that Europe was united, East and West being together, it looks such a huge success five or 10 years ago, now is such a a problem. Why you have uh, these governments uh, in Hungary and Poland, but to be honest, it's not simply the governments in Hungary and Poland. There is many issues that you basically see East Europeans uh, being very unhappy, and from this point of view, Poland is an interesting example. Because European Union is always great when you try to explain something in economic terms. But what happened in Poland cannot be explained through the economics only. Uh, First, financial crisis did not happen in Poland. Poland is the best performing country economy in the European Union for the last 10 years. Even more, when you talk about social inequality, unlike most of Europe, social inequality was rising, this is not true for Poland. For the last decade, social inequality has declined. And thirdly, if you see many of the people who are voting uh, for the Peace Party, uh, these people declare that they are personally satisfied with their economic well-being. 77% of the polls declare that they're satisfied with their personal economic uh, uh, well-being. Uh, a very famous political theorist, Adam uh, Szeworski, who is teaching in the US, but he's Polish by origin, when he was asked why Poland turned illiberal, he said, theoretically speaking, this should not have happened. And this is important. So basically, we should try to understand why something that theoretically should not have happened, happened. And there are two arguments that I want uh, uh, to make, and uh, uh, trying to make sense of the crisis of the Europe as a post-1989 project. The first is, one of the things that was totally underestimated in the last 30 years was not the problem of migration as people coming from outside Europe to Europe but very much the depopulation of Central and Eastern Europe. I do believe in Sweden because of the closeness to the Baltic countries. You know it better than some of the others. But one of the major impact of European integration was a major loss of population in Central and Eastern Europe. The Baltic republics lost around one-third of their population. Only for the last 10 years, Romania lost 3.5 million people, three-fourths of them under 35. This type of a loss of population basically has three different consequences on economic, on political, and psychological level. On economic level, it means that not simply people are living. And some of these people are people that you want to stay. They're young. They're entrepreneurial. They want to do things. This is not always the better part of the population, but quite often the most energetic part of the population. But all the money being invested in their education are living with them. I'm always making this joke, but it's easier to find an honest politician in Eastern Europe today than to find a nurse. Uh, Basically certain sectors, for example, the, uh, the, the public health sector is totally destroyed because a nurse in Bulgaria is going to be paid best 400 euros per month. Can you imagine how much money she's going to get just taking care of one family somewhere in the UK or even here in Sweden? So as a result of it, You have people living, people living with the money invested in their education and with their skills. Politically, it also means that not simply people are living, but voters are living. And if you see the pattern of voting, you're going to see that people living outside of the country are voting more for the liberal parties than people who are staying inside the countries. It's not by accident that most of the mass protests in Central and Eastern Europe takes place during the summer when people basically living abroad are coming back for the summer holiday. So as a result of it, you also have the change of the electoral body. But certainly in psychological terms, and I can see this very much in Bulgaria because <coughs> Bulgarian demography is particularly threatening because starting with 1989, Bulgaria used to be around nine million people, 1989. Now it's around seven million. According to the demographic projections, in the next 20 years, we're going to reach million. This creates the feeling that by the very fact that you're staying in a country that others want to exit, you look like a loser. And I'm always going to give you one kind of analogy that probably most of you know. This is what happened to some of the rural areas when 60s and 70s people massively went to the cities. For a young person, even when he's doing well financially, when he has a job that he likes, and by the way, his lifestyle probably is much better if he, than if he's driving a taxi somewhere in Vienna, the fact that all his friends have gone or want to go deprive him of the idea of the success that he deserves. Why I'm telling you all this? Because the second reason Central and East Europeans went quite skeptic towards the European project, the moment when nobody expected it, was that all the integration of the European Union, basically, was the realization of the imitation imperative. The message was, the East simply should imitate the West. It worked fine for the first 10 years, particularly for the generation that already has a (laughs) communist experience. But for the younger people, being an imitator, psychologically, is a depriving position. It's always somebody else telling you what is right, somebody you judging you, monitoring you. You don't want to be like this. You want basically to show that you're doing something on your own. And this idea of being an imitator is also particularly difficult because in many countries, imitating basically means imitating the Germans. And for Central and East Europeans, there was five huge problems of imitating the Germans. The first is basically when it comes to nationalism, and let's take the Poles as an example. For the Germans, because of the Nazi period, which was a very exceptional history on the German side, any form of nationalism was perceived as almost criminal because it can lead to Nazism. But for the Poles, nationalism was very much connected to the survival of the Polish states in the interwar period. But also during 1989, the nationalists and the liberals have been a coalition partners in the solidarity movement against communism. So the nationalists kept the feeling that 1989 was also a dead success. So when basically Poland was asked in the transition period to treat its own nationalism in the way the Germans were doing this, there was a strong resistance. The second is because of the way Hitler came to power by elections. In Germany, the most trusted institutions are non-majoritarian institutions, the Bundesbank and the Constitutional Court. But for Central and East Europeans, the problem of democracy was very much sovereignty was the vote, and it was very much about executive power. So this is uh, when uh, somebody like Mr. Kaczynski goes and said to the voters, do you know what? Look at the Constitu- look at the courts, look at the banks, They're alibi for the elites, to tell the people why government should not do what they have promised to do. Give me the whole power and I'll make the change, all this idea of impossibilism. It equals with certain part of uh, of the voters, so this type of a trust in a non-majoritarian institutions does not come easily for people who discovered voting after a long period of non-voting. Certainly, and this is quite important, when you start teaching people how you have succeed, and I do believe this is the most human thing that can happen, you're normally teaching not what you did, but what you should have done. For example, in the period 1950, 1968, denazification was not the major game in Germany. There is a lot of study being done because of the Cold War, because of this, because of that. There was a lot of amnesia, deciding where, you're not going to ask people what they have been doing in the 1930s and the 1940s, and everybody, everything should be put uh, and concentrate on the reconstruction. But then 1968 came, the generation 68 started asking questions. So when the Germans went to Eastern Europe after 1989, and this was the same for Eastern Germany, they said, we should do what we failed to do. And you have basically the illustration that happened in East Germany. I was before these elections in Germany in Eastern part. And when you talk to some people who are voting for AfD, you're going to understand that their vote was very much against the unification. And it was realized then against uh, the refugees. Because honestly speaking, there are not so many refugees in the eastern part of Germany. Most of the refugees are in the western part. Because from their point of view, it was not about historical justice, but the local elites were perched so the westerners can go. For example, 70% of the professors in the Leipzig universities were coming from Western Europe. So this type of tensions were coming and have been played politically. And the a certain a force and very important is, there was one thing that the West did not export to the East, and this was the social welfare model. And this was for good reasons. The globalization was coming, and the idea was that this model is not going to be sustainable with this type of an economy. But then people look around and said, but this is what we liked. We like stable jobs and so on. We wanted to live in the way the West lived. When we were not there. And this is a very important moment. The fact, and this is particularly strong in certain parts, for example, of the Polish society, where people said, we wanted to be like the West in the 1980s, which believed in God and have a permanent jobs and was ally with the US and was very much anti Soviet. And now, what we are getting, this is a different Europe. Why I'm saying this because this problem of imitation and the difficulty to imitate is very much part of this resentment that is difficult to understand where it comes from if you're simply looking at some of the economic uh, uh, data. Because the truth is that, unlike in Southern Europe, where people are losing money, where basically the convergence with the West have been broken. This is not true for Central and Eastern Europe. We are still doing better. And basically, there was a closing the gap between the East and the West when it comes to the economic performance. And here I'm going to end, because when it comes to this post-1989 Europe, I do believe that if we want to get European Union running again, it's very much to try to reinvent the Europe, where these should not be simply perceived as imitating the West, or as Mr. Orban believed now that the West should start to imitate him. Uh, uh, because he basically had this openly saying. He said, for the last 20 years, we have been imitating uh, uh, the West. But now it's time the West to start to imitate us when it comes to immigration policies and others. I do believe we should recognize that we're in a new situation because of the new international environment in which post-war Europe is not going to function in the way it was, because of this new political sensitivity coming to the shift to the majority rights, and also to the fact that now East and West should be ready to come with the project of Europe, which is a common project, and not simply perceiving Eastern Europe as a catch-up. Because otherwise, the political dynamics of Europe, the energy that can come from this common project, would be lost. So I'll stop here. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Ivan. Uh, I need to say we have ample time for questions and answers, so please uh, indicate if you have a question and a microphone will be be heading your way. Uh, But just to start off, Ivan, uh, there's lots of interesting things to pick up on here, but uh, one thing on East and West, I mean, especially in your work after Europe, which I can really recommend, also in a very good Swedish translation, you address some of the the particularities of of Eastern Europe and the kind of authoritarian trend. Um, But in in other workings, you suggest other trends uh, as well, such as the the kind of fall of uh, meritocracy uh, illiberal trends and in your writings from Washington and now during the autumn you describe the conspiracy-laden discussion in, in, in Washington right now and that feels very familiar from a European perspective. So what would you, what is really particular about Eastern Europe uh, and what is more general kind of social unrest right now?
1: Thank you very much uh, for the question because uh, uh, first there is a tendency when something goes wrong in Eastern Europe always to try to find particularly East European reasons for this. Uh, my bad, the bad news that I want to deliver is that 70% of the bad thing that you see in Eastern Europe is a common trend between East and West. There are 30% specifics, let's first start with the specifics. One major difference between East and West is the ethnic composition of societies. In the beginning of the 20th century, there were two Europes. One was quite ethnically homogeneous, and this was Western Europe. The other was very much ethnically and culturally diverse, and this was Central Europe, basically the Habsburg Europe. In 1939, one-third of the population of Poland were non poles They were Germans, they were Jews, they were Ukrainians. As a result of the World War II, and basically the anti cleansing which was not done by the East Europeans, it was done by the Soviets uh, uh, and the Germans during the war, uh, you have a totally different uh, 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 ethnic uh, composition. Now, Western Europe is much more culturally, ethnically, religiously diverse, and Central Europe is very much ethnically homogeneous. The percentage of the Poles in Poland is above 95%. Above 90% are uh, the Hungarians in Hungary. Just to give you one distinction between Austria and Hungary, countries that have been next to each other, very much common history. At the moment, the percent of the Austrian citizens not born in Austria is 14%. This is higher than in the United States. 50% of all students in the Vienna schools do not have German as a first language. 4% of the citizens of Hungary are not Hungarians Most of them, Hungarians, being born in Serbia or in Romania. So from this point of view, ethnic homogeneity is a major difference in the way people perceive it. So when people talk about migration, as I mentioned before, we are talking about two different things. First, in the West, it's very much about more foreigners coming than your country believes that can integrate. In the Eastern Europe, it's much more people living where you are not ready to replace with others. And this is a huge, the word is the same, the fears are different. But there when comes the common things, you said about conspiracy theories. The major predicator who is going to tell you, who is going to vote for the governing party in Poland is not education, is not income, and it is not even urban versus rural, nevertheless that all of these divisions matter, but this is going to be the belief that what happened, was the plane of the president Kaczynski was an assassination. This is the major divide. People who believe it was assassination are going to vote for the governing party. People who believe that it was an accident, in their big majority are going to vote for some of the opposition parties. Uh, for the moment, listen. At least on the basis of what we know, and there came several reports, it looked like a conspiracy theory. But where even not go on a concrete Polish case. What is the major difference between ideology and conspiracy theory? Ideology has a normative dimension, any ideology. It's something about the future. So from this point of view, you can continue to be communist or social democrat or liberal, even if you're going to criticize your party because you said there's a certain type of an ideas in which I believe, I stay, I'm the real one. When it comes to conspiracy theory, you're either in or out. You either believe it or you don't believe it. So this is a totally different model of belonging to a political community. This is very strong. When I was in the US, for the first time, I felt at home, to be honest. Uh, Americans were very much surprised. But I saw something that we have been experiencing in the early 1990s in Bulgaria. When you go to Washington and you are invited for a dinner party, be sure that you're not going to meet anybody who do not share the views of the host on President Trump. If he likes Trump, all the other guests are going to like Trump. If he dislikes Trump, all the guests are going to dislike Trumps. Uh, People are simply not socializing, particularly on the dinner level, with people who do not share their political views. And here is some data from the American uh, opinion polls. The higher the education is of a person, the more tolerant he is when it comes to religion, ethnicity, and race, but less tolerant he is when it comes to people who do not share his political views. So in a certain way, you have a level of political polarization, which makes democracy very difficult to work, and I'm going to end on this. In 1948, when basically the French get the universal voting right, there was a famous picture of this period with a worker that have a ballot in one hand and rifle in the other hand. And the famous interpretation was, ballot for the domestic enemy, bullet for the external enemy. The biggest problem is that in our democracy now, I had the feeling that people have much more passion to fight the domestic enemy than the external enemy if they know who he is. Uh, so from this point of view, this also has this kind of a balance, and this is very much also based on the changing story in a certain way, the disappearance of the war as a kind of a frame in which uh, uh, Western democracy functions.
0: Thank you. Let's see, do we have any questions? Slide? Here we Yes, please.
1: Thank you. Um, I would like
0: to ask you, do you see any kind of factor, anything that can unify Europe again? An idea, yeah. something that can unify Europe again?
1: If I knew the answer, I do believe that there are going to be a lot of people who are ready uh, to listen to me. Uh, but uh, listen, I believe in something on the other side which is very important. Look at All this criticism that goes to Europe, to the European Union, nobody comes with any alternative. First, the idea to the return of the nation state is now not an alternative even for the far right. Uh, Because people realize, and from this point of view, Brexit, probably Britain contributed again uh, to the fate of Europe, showing that if European Union start to disintegrate, we cannot be sure that some of the nation states in the way we know them are going to survive. And it was very clear with Catalonia, but you basically see with the United Kingdom and so on. So from this point of view, the paradox of Europe is that Europe on one level works without alternative. Really? I don't, for example, Mr. Orban never entertains the idea of his country leaving the European Union. There is no such, the idea of an exit option on him does not exist. Mr. Kaczynski, now particularly before the European elections, they said that everybody who is going to talk about Polski, that Poland can leave, is a national traitor. So from this point of view, you have this strange story in which the existence of the European Union is perceived as the optimal state of affairs for every of the member state. The problem is that people start to ask for different things for this European Union. Uh, and for me, the basic Your question is, what is the type of experience? I'm going to tell you three positive things that are not on ideas, but which I found positive. One is, as a result of all this crisis, we started to be interested in each other's. To be honest, if it was not for the migration crisis, nobody was interested in Eastern Europe. Because everybody believes that you know what Eastern Europe is going to be. It's going to be like the Western Europe, but in 20 years. So why to be interested in something you know the future of? then suddenly people start to realize that probably we don't understand something. Or look the Germans, they became a major experts on the Greek economy. Or look the Hungarians and the Poles, they are now the biggest experts on the asylum policies in Germany and Sweden. Uh, when I'm saying this, because shared interest in each other is the precondition for anything that wants to be community of faith. And for European Union to exist, you should be a community of faith. The second problem, of course, is people are saying, and I know this European army, and so on, and so on. It is also not as easy as it sounds. Because in order for Europeans, all these people in all these countries to feel secure, they should share a common security threat. But if Russia is perceived as very threatening for places like Sweden or Poland and the Baltics, Italians and Spains probably even don't know what has happened in Ukraine, because for them, this is a far abroad and they're very much worried about other things. So in order to have an effective, common and security policy, you need Europe, We should feel about Russia in the way the Poles feel, that should feel about Libya in the way the Italians feel, and we should feel about Turkey in the way the Greeks feel. It is very easy to be put on paper It's very difficult to have such a policy. So from this point of view, the external enemy is going to be difficult. And it's interesting to what extent, basically, the American focus on China is going to be a factor. Could China play this role? I don't know. I can imagine this working in the United States. I'm not sure how easily it's going to work on Europe. But still, I do believe for the first time, you have Europeans not taking security for granted in different places for different reasons. And the third thing which I found as a kind of a a, a, a new one and kind of optimistic in its uh, probably even uh, perverse way is that Europeans also started to realize that Europe is not as important as we believed. I'm even not going to talk about demography. 10 years ago, we believed that we were a laboratory of the world to come, post-national, post-sovereignty, very much being focusing on uh, human security and stuff like this. And then you look around, and you look that we are not, at least for the moment, the laboratory of the world that comes, we're exceptional. Democratic countries like India, they share more with sovereignty with China than with us. United States, on many things, they share more with China than with us. So the problem is our exceptionalism. You try to understand we are different, and for us, this difference matters for us. We want to stay different. So probably this is the Lady Gaga doctrine uh, in which you basically said, I want to be different, and this makes me different, and this makes me proud of this. This is something that could work. Is it going to work? I don't know. I believe in politics. This is the funny story. And when you believe in politics, you believe in three things. First, political leadership matters. When people are trying to explain everything through the structural trends, I don't buy it. There is politics. There is also luck. Nobody can uh, explain why President Macron became a president if he's not going to put the luck in the equation. He was lucky like hell. Uh, uh, So from this point of view, luck matters. Secondly, Machiavelli used to say something which was also important and which relies for Europe. He said, in politics, nevertheless, how well you're doing. At some point, you go down. You cannot avoid this. The problem is, did you manage to accumulate enough political legitimacy to survive the time of crisis? And I tend to believe that European Union probably managed to accumulate enough political legitimacy to survive. It is to be tested. But survival itself is the major source of legitimacy. And in the book, I make this argument. People are saying, oh, let's see how Habsburg Empire collapsed. And you can see how European Union is going to collapse. What people forget is that starting with the Napoleonic War, every year, people were expecting the Habsburg Empire to collapse. And they have a good reasons. But for 100 years, the Habsburg Empire forget to do it. So from this point of view, survival is the major source of legitimacy of any political project, including the nation state. Why we believe that nation states are stable? Because they have been around for a long time. And I do believe from this point of view, this is sources of optimism. So Bulgarians, we are not very famous of being optimists. I'm always uh, uh, giving this uh, study, which was done. Somebody was calculating the relations between GDP per capita and optimism. And the report that was uh, uh, written, and uh, there was an article in The Economist on this report, was titled... The optimists, the pessimists, and the Bulgarians. Because it appeared that we are kind of deviating. We're much more pessimistic than our GDP per capita would suggest. So on the level of optimism, this is what I can deliver, not more than this.
0: Yes, Nicholas. Yes, hi. Thank you very much for this uh, very interesting talk. Um, My question concerns the future order that you were talking about. so to what degree should we listen and learn from the Eastern European countries that you talked about? What is it that we should learn, and what, how should the future order adapt to the ideas and ideologies that we find in these countries? Thank you. Yeah,
1: thank you very much. Uh, uh, first, uh, uh, let's quote uh, American vice president who nobody has the reason to remember. There was such a, a person, Dan Quayle, who was the vice president of. Uh, uh, old Bush, who used to say, future will be better tomorrow. Uh, but what I want, for East Europeans, and this was also part of, uh, 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 of the reasons I wrote After Europe book, is there is one thing that we have major difference, ne- all of us, nevertheless, where we stay politically than Western Europe. Every East European has seen in his personal life in the last 40 years how fragile any political status quo is. Believe me, in 1989, communism in Bulgaria was stable like nature. It was not Poland. There was no solidarity. There was no people protesting. You know how your life is going to look like in the next 30 years. You can like it or dislike it. But, and then overnight, this changed. I was always giving this example, the day on November 10, 1989, when uh, 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 communist leader, Todor Zhivkov, resigned after being for more than 40 years in power. Uh, we have been in the restaurant of the Sofia University, and uh, uh, Zeljelov, who was the most important uh, dissident of the country and a very lonely one in this period, he was on a the table, there was uh, several of us, and he said, you are young people. Believe me, in your life, you are going to see the end of communism. Six months later, he was the president of the country. So from this point of view, the fragility of the political world is, for me, the major message. People can change very quickly. Many things that looks totally unthinkable. After six months, is going to look like inevitable. Just give you one more example. At the end of December 1990, uh, the Pentagon asked their six leading experts on Soviet Union to make a prediction of the Soviet development. And the major conclusion of the people who made their life on the Soviet Union was, OK? Soviet Union, by the way, this was interesting. They said they are not going, of course, to become Sweden. But they're also not going to collapse because they said, we know many things in history, but states very rarely commit collective suicides. It was one hour, uh, one year before it collapsed. So from this point of view, if there is something to learn from Eastern Europe is do not take European Union for granted. The moment when you're taking for granted, people are going to regret it. And the second thing which I do believe also is important from Central and East European experience, and which is very much reliable, uh, relates to what Europe is experiencing now, don't overestimate the role of the economy in the moment of crisis. Economic crisis can destroy the European Union, but at present, Economic growth cannot, on its own, legitimize the European Union. I do believe that even if European economy are going to grow in two or three percent, this is not going to be enough. There should be a political part of it. So, from this point of view, total reliance on economic performance on its own is also, from East European point of view, is not going to be is not going to be enough. And from this point of view, Polish example of the last ten years is a great uh, is a great argument to be made.
0: I think we take two questions, and then you'll have yeah, about five minutes to sum up. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on this, um, the, the Russia impact? Uh, the, uh, you mentioned the sort of unifying aspect of Russia as a threat, uh, but of course there is a large difference between the attitudes in Poland, where obviously this yeah. is a relevant thing, and, for example, in Hungary or various other Eastern European countries, or Central European countries. Could you yeah. uh, discuss a little bit their various attitudes? Yeah. We'll just take a little yeah. question as well. Then.
1: Yeah. Uh, I found your, your comments on, on the loss of population in, in Bulgaria and other Eastern countries very intriguing. So wh- what's your view on this? Um, 100, 150 years ago, Sweden lost a quarter of its population, actually. And That triggered some beneficial reforms in this country, I think. Do you envision something similar that will happen in Eastern Europe, or or will it go the other way? Thank, um. you. Uh, thank you very much uh, on both questions. Russia is not a unifying factor for the European Union at the moment. In a certain way, it's much more dividing. But this and the reason is exactly what you say. Uh, people tend to believe uh, that Russia is uh, Central Europeans are very sensitive on Russia, they are much more ready to compromise. This is true for some central European countries, it's totally not true for others. And even I'm not talking of Bulgaria, which traditionally and historically is much more pro-Russian. If you see Hungary, but even if you see the Czech Republic, uh, you're going to see that this is not the case. What is interesting, and this is the fact that, nevertheless, that Russia was perceived as very much penetrating European societies and others, Russians never manage to achieve any of the member states to veto any of the major decisions taken by the European Union on Russia. China did it. Hungary and Greece vetoed common position. So from this point of view, the story is that Russia, on one level, probably is more important uh, when it comes to the European Union than people normally believe, because also of the fact that People are less threatened than the Soviet Union was. Nobody believes this is the story with Russia, and I have been. Uh, my, my joke always was that probably I have seen more senior Russian officials in the last year than the Trump administration, the Trump campaign. Uh, but the basic story is people don't fear anymore that Russia is going to conquer the West. So this is not the Soviet Union of sixties. The fear is that we are starting to look like Russia that many things that basically we believe were typical for Russia, we start to discover in our own societies. Uh, and this is kind of a threatening. And this is basically, you say, what is happening, why it is happening, and so on. Uh, but uh, And I do believe this is becoming a huge problem, particularly when you see some of the political parties uh, doing this or that and far right. What is changing these days, and this is quite interesting, and this is also strange part of the Trump phenomena. Because of the Trump presidency in the United States, we see a shift of the loyalty of many of the far-right parties in Europe from Russia to the United States. And from this point of view, the Bannon factor here is an interesting perceived. To be be very brutal on this, I do believe that basically Americans bought some of the far-right, which was basically very much related to the Russians, also on the level of money and uh, other support. How Russia is going to play? It's interesting because also two things that we believed about Russia are not true anymore. There was a very strong consensus in the European policy making that I never understood where it comes from, that Russia and China can never go too close. There was all this talk about Siberia, Russian sphere, and so on. If you see the development in the last one year particularly, Russia and China went very close. On the level of military exercises, They're exercising together. But what is even more important, Russia allowed Alibaba and some of the Chinese big tech company to have use of the data of the Russian consumers. This is the level of infiltration and penetration that you're allowing only to a country that you trust quite a lot. So from this point of view, this is going to be a new problem for Europe because it's quite probably that we're going to see Russia and China as a couple into European public space, which was not something that we have been prepared. And secondly, I do believe also what is quite important is that what is shocking us in the case of Russia is that many things that we have been perceiving as the major vulnerability and weakness of the Russian regimes suddenly turn to be part of its advantages. Just to give you one example, there was a lot of people who have been following, uh, particularly uh, the cyber and the intelligence space, were claiming with very good reasons, that the level of corruption in the Russian intelligence services is very high and they're making a lot of money and they're using all all these hackers to make private benefit. It was true, but it appeared that having this kind of a combination between criminals and state institutions uh, in a situation of the hybrid war works well. Suddenly something that was perceived as the major kind of a vulnerability turns out to be advantage. Uh, and I found this quite important. I do believe, on the other side, that Russian society does not have the energy, neither on the level of the leadership, not on the level of kind of believing in its own strengths. Part of the our overpowerful image of President Putin is the result of the Western media. Uh, and I don't believe that he's as powerful. There was a moment in which we believe that Russia is totally weak, totally I mean, angry men on crunches and so on, they cannot do anything. And then we went on the other extreme. They're doing everything. They're deciding all the elections in the world. They are so powerful that they can do everything. And by the way, this starts to have a negative impact of its own. Imagine that you are a Bulgarian politician, and you're reading every day in the American papers that President Putin can elect an American president. What about Bulgarian president? Uh, So from a certain point of view, this idea of an overpowerful Russia, which substituted the idea of a totally kind of a weak and impotent Russia, is also part of our political imagination. And I'm going to end on this uh, question on this. Paradoxically, our view of Russia is very much based on how we feel about ourselves, much more than about basically our analysis, what is happening in Russia itself, when it comes to the population story. This is a huge story because demographically, unfortunately, uh, when, you're, uh, when in Sweden a lot of people have been living, we're talking about quite young population. Now you have this combination of a shrinking population because of uh, out-migration, but also because of aging and so on. Our societies should try to find a way to attract people back and to go to much more the circular idea of migration. I do believe that if we are entrepreneurial enough The fact that we have the depopulation problem is a very good reason for us to look much more for new technologies, for robotics, and so on, because we basically need it. Can our societies do it? I don't know. For the moment, we are not kind of in the best shape uh, uh, in which we have been. But here also it depends from the country. Uh, Poland is a very dynamic society. Poland, for me, very much reminds me uh, uh, United States or Turkey. It's a divided society. You have two Poland's. You can, every election basically try to uh, count which one is the majority one. But y- you have a lot of energy. Some of the other East European societies are much more hurt by this kind of a shrinking of the population and political energy. Corruption is a real issue, because the problem with corruption also is that you lost trust in the elites. And unfortunately, you also lost trust, particularly, in some of the put it English language speaking, or foreign language speaking elites. Because people start to have the fear that some of these people in the time of crisis are simply going to leave. Uh, And I do believe part of the appeal of the populist parties is we probably are not better than others, but we have nowhere to go. We are going to stay with you. And in politics, I do believe you're never going to trust somebody who have an exit option when you don't have one. So thank you very much for your (laughs)
0: So, thank you very much Ivan. Uh, Ivan will have to run to his taxi just to tell you, if you think one hour of Ivan Krastev was not enough, there will be a pod recording so you can listen to him again. Uh, Also, there will be a text coming to an anthology that we will publish together with CFC uh, in the spring. So, look out for that. But thank you very much for coming thank you for a very rich talk. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UISweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.